the History Channel original podcast. It's a food you see across culinary traditions and throughout the ages. Yeah, I mean, every culture has got a donut, right? It's just fried dough. In Mexico, you've got churros. In France, you've got beignets. In the United States, probably our favorite fried dough treat is the donut. The donut. It's a delicious treat, but it also conjures up a scene that almost any American will recognize. That rich scent of dough cooking, sugar glazing, the rich aroma of fresh coffee, and the brightly lit little rows and rows of colorful pastry. Everybody has their favorite. You know, you look at that rack, you know exactly what you're going in for. There's sprinkles, glazed, jelly filled, maple bacon, if you're into that. It's unmistakable. It's round. It's got some icing on top. It might have sprinkles. And there's just something so iconic and even comforting about the donut, even though all it is is fried dough with lots of sugar. That's today. This is the food that built America. Stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll tell you the unlikely story of the donut, how an enterprising young man turned a little treat into the star of the show, and how his business grew from a mobile shop to a publicly traded behemoth. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Let's go back, way back. Before there was Dunkin' or Krispy Kreme, or even your favorite family corner donut shop, there was fried dough. In fact, the modern donut can likely be traced all the way back to the 1600s, when the Dutch brought their version of fried dough to New York, according to food historian Sarah Wasserberg-Johnson. The likely origin of the donut in the United States is from the Dutch immigrant food way, oily cakes, right? There are these fried little cakes that really get their start with the Dutch colony in New York. People ate those oily cakes throughout the early history of the country. But donuts as we know them weren't all that popular until the beginning of the 20th century, when their big debut arrived on the front lines. And I think it's really a World War One that sort of brings the donut to the fore. Troops out on the front lines developed a taste for them. Who can blame them? The uh, Salvation Army lassies on the front lines, they have white flour, they have lard, they have sugar, and they're trying to make treats for the boys in the trenches, and they think, well, let's, let's make donuts, right? Beth Kimberly is an author who writes about the history of America's confectionery industry. So they start simply with fried dough and a little bit of sugar and cinnamon, or maybe fried dough with a little bit of lemon rind, and that's when fried dough starts to become the donut we know. When they came back from war, some of these men brought a taste for donuts back with them. But it really took off at the Chicago World's Fair that exhibited in 1933 and 1934. So the Chicago World's Fair, the century of progress, that's got a donut machine that's making donuts and people are putting cinnamon and spice and all different flavors on them. So it's not just this like fried dough, but it's got this theater behind it. And it was really at that moment that it becomes the birth of this American iconic food. Back then, though, donuts didn't have the same amount of star power that they have now. They kind of blended in with other bakery goods like muffins and cookies. Still, they were delicious. It was fun to watch them get made. They were also pretty cheap. 
it costs less than a nickel. So it's feasible for a lot of Americans to be able to purchase even during the Great Depression. That's Bonnie Miller, a history professor at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. She points out that times were tough. It was the middle of the Great Depression. A lot of people were barely scraping by around this time. People, including Bill Rosenberg. He's the second oldest of four, and his father loses his shop during the Great Depression. So in 1929, Rosenberg quits school to help the family out. It was a huge sacrifice. But Beth Kimmerly says Rosenberg took it in stride. He's kind of entrepreneurial, like a lot of folks were in that era, but there's not a lot of jobs around. So he sort of has to invent these jobs. And Bill was a little bit of a young hustler. It's a trait that would follow him his entire life. He built a reputation on it. Bill Rosenberg's legacy lies in his entrepreneurialism and his belief in franchising. His son, Bob, said he could sell the sand on the beach. He had a saying that he wrote in his memoir that there are two ways to get to the top of an oak tree. You can sit on an acorn and wait for it to grow, or you can climb the tree. He's a tree climber in business as in his life. Rosenberg learned to be resourceful and work with what he had. By 1946, he had his own business, delivering sandwiches, snacks, and coffee to nearby factory workers. He had an acute sense of what people wanted because he was one of them. And so it was really these, this Depression-era concept that, you know, a hot meal and a hot drink was what people wanted and needed, and that carried over after the Depression. And so what happened is you get retailers who are understanding that people still want to behave in this convenience-based way, and, and to-go coffee really becomes an American thing. In that, Rosenberg saw an opportunity. He sees that there's kind of this underserved port area of Boston that has no good food places for the port workers. And he sees them walking and he sees them bringing their own lunch and a light bulb goes off, right? So he understands that if he could bring lunch to them and create a catering company to bring lunch to these dock workers, that that's a business opportunity. The dock workers were presumably hungry and they needed someone to bring them a hot meal. Near the docks were a fleet of empty telephone company trucks. Well, not full cars, just the chassis. He bought 10 of them and had them custom converted with stainless steel shelves and sides that opened. And so he took old utility trucks, right? So these were trucks that were decommissioned by the telephone company, and he built those into little mini luncheonettes. Rosenberg wasn't inventing lunch. He was pioneering food trucks. Hipsters rejoice. Because he was mobile, he could serve multiple docks at once. It allowed him to sell a lot of items, but with a very little footprint. Little capital, few expenses, etc. So he got an idea to team up with an accountant named Harry Winokur. Harry Winokur is someone that teaches and mentors Bill in the early days and where he learns a lot of his business skills. Harry's wife, Etta, introduces Bill to her sister, Bookie, and they get married. They partnered up to tackle what they considered a huge gap in American lunches. 
people wanted on-the-go foods. And the donut was this perfect item for on-the-go. And a lot of people think that because it had the hole, it was almost like a steering wheel, right? And people were able to dunk it and eat it on the go. It worked for them. And sure, sounds pretty obvious that donuts would be a good to-go food. They're portable, filling, perfect for multitaskers and commuters. So he has coffee, sandwiches, and donuts. He realizes that that's what these dock workers want, right? But it didn't take long for Rosenberg to notice a pattern. More than 40% of his sales were just going to coffee and donuts. But Bill Rosenberg, he gets the idea that he wants to focus on the coffee and the donuts, the two most profitable items and nothing else. And he's willing to risk the whole idea on that concept. Rosenberg and Winokur were seeing their first glimmer of success. And they ran with that success. Together, they opened their first real brick-and-mortar donut shop. It was Rosenberg's idea, but Winokur wasn't immediately thrilled. Harry is conservative and cautious, whereas Bill is ambitious and bold. Harry Winokur at first is shocked by the idea because things had been going so well in their mobile catering business. But Bill decides that he wants to go ahead and do this, and there's no stopping Bill when he has an idea in his head. It took a while for Winokur to come around, but he finally agreed. He gets the idea that it may be more profitable to open up a donut store rather than just sell off the food trucks. And this is what sparks the idea to open up a storefront. They called it Open Kettle. It's in the southern suburbs of Boston in Quincy, Massachusetts. They name it Open Kettle because you make donuts in a large vat called an Open Kettle. And that inspires the name. Once Bill had won the fight over the brick-and-mortar shop, he just kept pushing. And so he was actually a little tricky along the way. And at one point told the, the business partner, okay, yeah, we'll serve lunch. And meanwhile, he's on the phone to the you know, company that's going to serve them the, the ingredients or going to make the sandwiches. And he says, it's not happening. So, you know, he's got this real vision, not necessarily, you know, honest communication with the business partner. They made it work. And their first order of business, coffee. Coffee was a drink that you can get when you were at the local, you know, soda fountain or at your diner. It wasn't a, it wasn't a place. And it was really becoming convenient for Americans to have these two items together. After coffee came the donuts. That all happened one night when Rosenberg went out to dinner at a Howard Johnson's. While he was eating there, he noticed there were 28 different flavors of ice cream. It inspired Rosenberg. Why do glazed donuts when you could have, well, 28 kinds of donuts? And what if he shot for the moon and almost doubled that? No, we're gonna have 52 flavors, one for every week of the year, which is nuts. <laughs> it's nuts, it's nuts. But it kind of set the stage because we have had a donut craze. And any flavor imaginable of donuts, you're going to find from passion fruit to lemon and poppy seed. This was a huge moment for Rosenberg and Open Kettle. It would set his entire business into motion and really set him apart. 
So it was really kind of capturing this like, you know, newness that people desired in food, right? Well, let's go see what the special is. Let's go see what that special recipe for the week is. It worked. Customers would come by just to see what Rosenberg was cooking up that week. Just because they'd eaten one donut didn't mean they'd eaten them all. There was a reason to return. There was another big moment around this time. Rosenberg realized the name of the business wasn't doing them any favors. It sounded kind of old-fashioned. And what was really interesting in his first year of being open, he took the customer's experience to heart. And he looked at what they were doing with coffee and donuts, and they were dunking, right? He realized that this was, this was a Boston thing, possibly. This was an American thing. He didn't know, but that open kettle name had to go. And he quickly changed the name of his business to Dunkin' Donuts. And there you have it, Dunkin' Donuts. But Rosenberg wasn't done. He wanted a new location, too even if it meant taking a few risks, as Bonnie Miller points out. Together, he and Winokur opened five shops. And this was a very difficult move for Bill. He has to take out a second mortgage and borrow money in order to make the deal. But he believes in the idea, and he doesn't want to give it up. This irked Rosenberg's partner, Harry Winokur. The way he saw it, Rosenberg was being too willy-nilly with his business. So Winokur, fed up, decided to go off and do his own thing. He left and opened his own donut shop. He called it Mr. Donut. Harry is content at different stages because he feels that the company is doing well, it's profitable. Why fix it if it isn't broken? The two men and their companies became competitors. In fact, Mr. Donut still exists today. So in May of 1955, Bill and Harry Winokur dissolved this partnership. The donut wars were on, and Bill was determined to win. It's both an asset and a drawback. He thinks big, and he takes a lot of risks, but he loves the spotlight, and he's not good about sharing it. Now that he was alone, Bill committed to his strategy. Open up more shops. Dunkin' Donuts is an American story because of its entrepreneurialism and its franchising. Franchising. Rosenberg would franchise his business, a new concept at the time that essentially allowed other business owners to run locations of the shop. In an effort to maintain consistency from store to store, he made all his franchisees pledge two things. First, make sure no donut over four hours old will be sold. And second, don't allow coffee to sit in the pot for more than 18 minutes. And what he does is he comes up with a system in which they would line the baskets with the baked goods with color-coded parchment paper, white for the morning shift, blue for the afternoon, and then red for the evening. So the idea was that at the end of that four hours, whatever was left would be discarded, and a customer coming in in the afternoon would never get served a donut off of a tray that had a basket with white paper. It ensured freshness, consistency. No matter which Dunkin' Donuts you showed up at, you knew you were getting a fresh donut and a hot, recently brewed cup of coffee. Rosenberg wouldn't continue as a one-man show for much longer. He had another change on the horizon. 
In the mid-60s, Rosenberg brought his son, Bob Rosenberg, on to help out. Bob was young, just 25 years old. But he got it. He had a great sense of business. He had watched his entire life, his dad run this business, and he was a Harvard Business School grad. And so he really brought this education, this formalized business education with his dad's entrepreneurship to be able to bring that into Dunkin' Donuts and really set the stage for a new era of Dunkin' Donuts. That included a brand new marketing plan. So that marketing plan included more innovation around food, more advertisement, and new products. With the father-son duo running the show, Dunkin' Donuts was on its way to quick success. One of Bob's first ideas was growing the business, kind of like his dad wanted to at first. But the Rosenbergs would soon find out they didn't have the market entirely cornered. Dominating the market wouldn't be as easy as they thought. There was another big competitor, beyond Winokur's Mr. Donut, Southern Chain Krispy Kreme. When Bob takes over the company in 1963, it continues to grow and expand. Dozens more open up in the New England area, and they begin to expand into new regions. And in nearly every one, they gain a strong foothold. The most difficult market was the South, or in the Southeast in particular, because of the success of Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme had a stronghold in the South. People there loved those donuts. In fact, by the late 1950s, they'd already had 29 stores in 12 states, and they appeared to be growing. So the Rosenbergs got bold. And in 1968, they approached Vernon Rudolph, owner of Krispy Kreme, with an offer. Bill Rosenberg approaches Vernon Rudolph, who is the founder of Krispy Kreme, and tries to buy them out. And Vernon Rudolph said, not selling at any price. Bob had to try something else. If Krispy Kreme wouldn't sell, he'd need another way to expand and raise capital. He decided he wanted to go public. So the year he offered to buy Krispy Kreme, Dunkin' Donuts submitted its IPO. It's the third fast food company at the time to do that after McDonald's and KFC. The gamble pays off. Money starts to pour in. So they kept expanding. But not so fast. The Rosenbergs moved a little too quickly. Stock price started to fall. They need another card to play. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As the Rosenbergs were trying to figure out a way to make money and expand their business, an idea practically landed at their feet. One day, a franchise in Hartford asked Rosenberg a life-changing question. What happened to the round bit of donut inside the dough? What happened to the donut hole? Rosenberg's thought about it. What if they sold those extra pieces of dough from the inside, the donut hole? And what would they call these little guys? The munchkin, 
named for the Wizard of Oz character who greeted Dorothy when she lands. Cute, right? And as luck would have it, they were popular as soon as they were introduced in 1972. And the Munchkin was really genius because it encouraged people to buy multiples. This was actually a very shrewd business move. That's because in the 70s, when fast food companies were franchising, they were looking at kids as a target customer and creating products like the Happy Meal. People kept telling my mother I looked like a munchkin. (laughs) Well, this is what a munchkin looks like. These little bite-sized donut holes were perfect treats for kids. Plus, instead of getting a dozen donuts for a kid's party, you get 24 or 48 munchkins. You were getting a good amount for your dollar, and you were buying more. This was a game changer for Dunkin' Donuts. Around this time, the Rosenbergs started reevaluating their whole business plan. What worked, what didn't. One big takeaway. Everyone liked donuts. So they decided to take their business international. And over the years, Dunkin' Donuts in other countries have taken some fun turns. There were also some donut varieties that didn't seem to work in different places, which led international franchisees to begin to innovate, creating donuts like the kimchi donut in Korea or the lychee donut in Indonesia or the date donut in the Middle East. But it wasn't just the donuts that had customers lining up. People loved the coffee. So in 1996, Dunkin' Donuts did something we wouldn't consider that groundbreaking today. They added iced coffee to the menu. It wasn't just iced coffee, it was multiple flavors of coffee. Want caramel coffee to pair with your glazed donut? You got it. Dunkin' had its finger on the pulse of its consumer base. But it could also smell competition from a mile away. So Dunkin' Donuts has competition. You have a company that's based in the East Coast that's getting threatened from the North, Tim Hortons, and from the West. Starbucks, and they realize that they have to serve an array of drinks. It can't just be to-go hot coffee anymore. They really have to innovate like they did in donuts. They have to innovate in beverages. Around this time, in 1990, the Rosenbergs sold the company, though Bob stayed on as CEO until 1998. This decade was one of the many changes for the company. In 1997, Dunkin' Donuts hit the market with a coffee culotta, the company's first coffee-flavored frozen drink. People loved it. It was a wild success and brought in $200 million. Mmm, these new Dunkin' Signature lattes are so good. Yeah, blueberry crisp with whipped cream and cinnamon sugar. Yeah, this is almost like latte meets work of art. And so they take a look at the landscape. They take a little bit of Tim Hortons and a little bit of what's happening at Starbucks. And they put those sort of drinks on their menu, not knowing if they're like, you know, consumers are going to go for anything except this styrofoam of scalding hot coffee. They put start putting those on the menu and they realize pretty quickly that's where the money is. It mirrored Bill Rosenberg's first observation that people were dunking their donuts. He knew what the people wanted. Instead of having two items, put the donut inside the coffee and start having donut flavors show up in the coffee. So they were really brilliant in looking at their competition, honoring their own roots, right? We're still donuts and coffee, but how about putting some of those fun flavors within the coffee and drink? And instead of people having to buy two items, well, they just get one. With that, Duncan was in on becoming a coffee-first establishment. They pivoted hard. 
Dunkin' Donuts, they really found their niche with, with serving these kind of like giant-sized iced coffee beverages that they've got so many flavors to choose from. You're really getting like a, a really sweet, sugary, caffeinated beverage. I mean, you're definitely going to make more money selling that drink than selling a donut. They pivoted so hard, in fact, they changed their image. 2006, they launched their campaign, America Runs on Dunkin', appealing to hardworking people who needed to stay caffeinated. Dunkin' Donuts Coffee, America Runs on Dunkin'. And then in 2018, they made another bold move, dropping the donut from their name entirely. Now they're just Dunkin', or DD for short. Dunkin' Donuts, it's the donut restaurant that forgot about the donuts, and now it's all about coffee. True, but they didn't quite forget about donuts. They've kept a lot of their brand loyalty. Ask any East Coaster from Boston or Bar Harbor. Dunkin' Donuts is a force. It's a, it's an incredible force, particularly on the East Coast, where people are very loyal to not only their type of coffee, they have a very specific recipe of coffee, but their donuts, right? That's what people grew up on, and so they have a loyal following. Partially because Dunkin' does something you can't do yourself. You try frying donuts with scalding hot oil. It's not as easy as making chocolate chip cookies. It's something that they are going to go out and buy. Whereas muffins and scones, people bake those at home and it's fine. But very few people are at home frying donuts. It's not just the East Coast, of course. People love Dunkin' all around the world. So would we be eating donuts on the same kind of scale had it not been for Bill Rosenberg? Probably not. If you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch the Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At the History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Alexis Martinez is our podcast coordinator. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound, and fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. 